Good afternoon. It is a beautiful Monday, September 14th here in the Midwest. Uh, welcome to the Joe Moran Show. Uh, as always, excited to be here. Um, achieving one step at a time. A civil discourse that's worthwhile, that's worth listening to, that's worth engaging in. Uh, in the year 2020. Uh, it's been a difficult year, right, for most. Um, a challenging year. However, we'll get through it. We'll survive it. We'll come out better on the other side. But as always, you know, appreciate the, uh, the civil discourse and the intelligent conversations um, as we try to get better, smarter, uh, and more understanding of all of the things around us. So we have an interesting show lined up today. I want to get into Oracle and Microsoft and their pursuit of TikTok and the United States assets. Uh, so I want to dive into that. Um, want to talk a little bit about the market, you know, what happened today, as well as Bitcoin and Bitcoin supply that's available on the various exchanges. Mnuchin's back. My favorite uh, Secretary of the Treasury is back. <laughs> so we'll dive into his comments. Uh, and then, did you guys see this? So on Saturday, maybe my favorite Twitter follow is a gentleman named Brian and I'm going to butcher this, but I'll just say it's Romilly. Uh, he is a futurist. Uh, very interested in voice capabilities and how voice is really going to change the way that we live and interact um, going forward. So we think of Siri, Alexa, you know, those types of... Um, those types of hardware that involve uh, voice interaction. So he's, I mean, he's knee deep in it. Um, but honestly, I think some of his most insightful uh, work is when he posts um, clips from 1990, 1980, 1950, uh, and these interviews with various futurists. And I know he thinks of himself as a futurist. Um, but I want to dive into something that he tweeted on Saturday, and it's starting to just pick up traction today. Uh, and then the last couple things that I'm interested in talking about today is, you know, honestly, does anybody does anybody know how to do business in Kazakhstan? Uh, if you do, please reach out. Um, I'm looking at opening a subsidiary there, and don't really want to get into. Uh, uh, don't really want to get involved with a bunch of attorneys, um, but I think I'm going to have to if, uh, if, if I plan to make it work. But uh, if not, shoot me an email uh, at uh, jp.moran11 at gmail.com if you, if you can do any business in Kazakhstan. And then, you know, I think one of the things that we all deal with or have dealt with during this crisis, or at least a lot of us, is the feeling of isolation, 
um, you know, as we've had to social distance, be away from our friends and family um, during the COVID-19. And, and I do want to talk about kind of the impact that the isolation is having on, you know, I can, you know, talk about it for myself, but also some di- discussions that I've had with other individuals, friends, family, and, and kind of what they're going through. Um, because, you know, mental health, as we all know, is critically important. Um, and it can be difficult during times like this. So that's how I'm going to wrap up the show. Uh, hope everybody, like I said, had a great weekend. Um, and, and let's get after it. So Oracle and Microsoft, you know, for the last, let's call it four to six weeks, have been positioning themselves for a TikTok acquisition. And, you know, immediately, you know, product market fit, where does this line up from a strategic standpoint, from a tactical standpoint, in terms of the acquisitions? I mean, we've talked about Oracle's um, really M&A presence, how they've done, I think it was 140 plus acquisitions since 2005, Uh, just a lot of acquisition, just very active in the space. In the technology space, same for Microsoft. Both companies aggressive when it comes to acquisitions. So it's not really surprising that both would kick the tires on the TikTok uh, forced sale uh, due to Trump's order. Um, but you know we're finally starting to get some closure today on what's happening with the acquisition and kind of what the next steps are. So ByteDance awarded the sale to Oracle and not Microsoft. And the reason why is it, frankly, it's a skinny down, it's a skinny down acquisition, right? So Microsoft wanted everything. They wanted the algorithm, they wanted the data, they wanted everything that had to do with those U.S. assets. Um, and, you know, honestly, that was the um, that was the message that was received from Trump. It's going to be a for sale. You know, ByteDance is going to have to divest and basically exit the U.S. market. Um, and, you know, we, we discussed... When this all came out, you know, what was the motivation behind it? Well, you know, honestly, you know, my my thoughts are that Trump was just bent due to the TikTokers playing um, playing a joke on his expense relative to the Tulsa uh, rally that didn't go well for Trump. Um, so he was frustrated. And wanted to take it out on those TikTokers by basically saying, well, you're no longer going to be able to TikTok anymore, right? And I think that's really what he was trying to do. Um, and then, you know, throughout the process, he, he looked at it, hey, I could p- perhaps gain politically from saying, oh, we're going to make you sell and divest and get out of the United States or... Maybe I look like a hero to all of those 16, 17, 18-year-olds that use TikTok um, because I can sell it and or force the sale right away from China. So I went on the China front. 
Um, I'm difficult on China. I'm tough on China, as Trump would say. And then I can look at a win to the younger population because they can still utilize TikTok and they'll be thanking me for it. So, I, I mean, Trump, Trump is not a complicated guy in trying to understand his motivations, right? He wants to be in office. He wants to look like he's hard and tough on China. And he's going to do anything that he can now politically um, to stay in office. So, you know, that's my opinion, right? Well, everything really from day one of this acquisition, this potential acquisition, showed that Microsoft had the leg up on the acquisition, right? They were always considered the front runner. And Oracle, you know, after a week or two, you know, whispers started to come out and it's like, okay, Oracle is going to make a bid. And why Oracle? Well, it just so happens that Larry Ellison is a uh, huge contributor in terms of cash to Trump and his campaign. Um, big believer in Trump. They're friends. So, okay, well, I guess that makes sense. You know, Trump probably called Larry Ellison and was like, look, you got to get in on this acquisition. Um wouldn't you want to be competitive with Facebook and wouldn't you want to get into the social media space and you can compete with Twitter and Facebook and look at the growth. You get this younger audience, um, all the data that comes with it. So it was probably a fairly easy conversation for Trump to have along with it, Larry, uh, just through the relationship and the potential upside. Now, which one does it make sense really? It feels more like a Microsoft product. Maybe that's just because Oracle is just straight B2B. It, you know, on the consumer front, very little, has little to do within consumers. Um, but whatever, right? I'm sure Larry's a smart guy. He can figure it out. But, you know, you start to kind of peel back the layers of the onion on this deal and and I'm talking about the final deal and so what's coming out is the algorithm isn't part of it it's really just a shell of the assets I mean the algorithms everything right so if you're not getting the algorithm what the fuck are you getting you're getting some data right but the software algorithm, the program, that's everything. And you're not getting that? So really, what's Oracle getting? They're not getting much in this deal. You know, Microsoft probably was going to pay more, wanted everything, makes a little bit more sense strategically with Microsoft. But they weren't going to do the deal unless they got the algorithm. Right? Not interested. Because without the algorithm, you got nothing. And Oracle is now getting about 50-25% of what Microsoft was after. And they're still going to have to drop 25 bill. It's not complicated. It isn't difficult to understand what's happening here, right? Trump 
is letting ByteDance and TikTok and China and President Xi off easy. He's all he's letting them off easy. This is a total win, 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 win for China. Cause they're not giving shit up. They're not giving up the algorithm. And they're getting 25 bill. Because they're preying on Trump's motivation and the incentive for the deal. And that's to look good politically. To try to get a handful more votes. I mean it's just it's 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 unbelievable to me that people don't understand and can't articulate and the journalists in this country do a huge disservice to the American people because they're not talking about what Trump's motivations are and how he makes decisions. Right? They're not rational decisions. And, I mean, we're going to look back in a year from now or two years from now. And we're going to look and be like, what was that TikTok acquisition about? Because they didn't get shit. <laughs> they didn't get shit. They got some data. There might be some synergies from a cloud perspective, right? But you didn't get the algorithm. You didn't get the thing that's the most important piece of the puzzle. So it just it just kind of boggles my mind. Um, you know, we'll see what happens as the government reviews the acquisition, uh, since it is really a uh, purchase of a, of a Chinese company by a U.S. company. So we'll see. But, you know, I fully expect it to go through if it can be resolved in the next, you know, 50 days, right, before the election's over. And if not, if it can't be resolved by then, then who knows, right? Trump loses, the, the acquisition may not go forward, right? So we'll see. Um, actually, I would probably bet on that um, and getting the approval of all the regulators. I would bet on it actually not going through versus it going through just because of the variables in play. But, you know, we'll see. Uh, interesting, nevertheless, um, Trump is going to be desperate trying to win this election because he's still down five, six, seven, eight points. And it, the math just gets really difficult when you're 50 days out um, at those kind of numbers and at that kind of deficit. Um, next on the show, I want to talk about Bitcoin, my favorite hard asset. Uh, it is starting to springboard over the last week. It's up about 5.7%. Um, good news, you know, trading at you know, just over 10,700. So it's rebounding. The market's starting to rebound from that difficulty earlier this month where the market really just started to suffer due to the lack of fiscal stimulus. Um, so Bitcoin's rebounding. Now, one of the things that I look at, and it surprises me that I don't see more discussion on this topic, um, whether it's in Twitter or various articles or podcasts that I listen to, um, is related to the amount of Bitcoin available on the supply. Or sorry, the supply that's available on the exchanges. Now, we know that after the halving, the supply available to the market gets cut in half. So we went from 12.5 to 6.25, right? Bitcoin 
that gets introduced to the market or gets mined, let's say gets rewarded to the miners every 10 minutes, give or take. So we know that happened. Well, what's fascinating to me and something that I'm looking at on a daily basis is what's happening to the supply that's on the exchanges, the supply of Bitcoin that's available to the market to purchase. Okay. So if we look at it and if we look at that metric and we go back to the halving. So early May, let's call it May 10th, there was about 2.78 million Bitcoin on the exchanges. So 2.78 million, okay? Price was at 8,700, got it, okay. So now the supply that's available to the market going forward was cut in half, at least what can be mined was cut in half. And one would anticipate that until the price hits a certain you know number, right, X, that the supply that's available to the market would continue to drop. And at some point, there's gonna be an equilibrium that happens where price hits X, and the miners go, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready to, you know, sell my sell my Bitcoin, put it on the exchanges, uh, because I'm being rewarded financially to do so. Well, I've been looking at this this supply really for the last, let's call it, 30 days consistently. But it's something I'm going to be tracking going forward. And the supply as of today. was 2.59 million. So we're down about 180, 190,000 Bitcoin since May. Um, and, you know, really, if I go back and I look at, okay, at what point in time or when was the last time or what was the date and time that we were at this kind of supply available in the market, so 2.59. And you're at, I mean, honestly, it's, it's November, it's November of 18, the last time we were here. November of 18, so almost two years ago. So in three months, it'll be, so we're 21 months ago is when we were at this number. 21 months ago. So that tells you that the supply that's entering the market is slowing down, which we would expect from the halving. And at some point in the future, the supply is going to continue to drop and there's going to be an equilibrium where the exchanges are going to say, look, if you want to buy X Bitcoin, you're going to have to pay this price, right? Um, and what happened is I went back and I looked at, I thought it'd be very interesting to go back and look at what happened to supply in the market after after the having, after the previous having. So if I go back to the previous having, 
in May of 16. Let's call it 930,000 was, was, uh, was available on the exchanges to purchase on, you know, kind of mid-May of 16. It dropped to sub-9. So sub-900,000. It actually increased, which is interesting. So it actually increased to about a million per Bitcoin before dropping to 900,000. So it's a little different um, with what happened this time around, but nevertheless, dropped 30,000. So let's call it, you know, 3% or so. Um, but it actually went up to about a million before then it really started to drop. And it dropped about 10%, right? So it went from a million and let's call it late July to 900,000. Um, which was about the number in mid-December before it really started to go up. So it would have been December 2016. So looking at it this year, again, May 10th, we're at 2.77. Right now we've dropped about 180, 190,000 in Bitcoin. I actually think it could drop another you know, 100,000 before it hits that equilibrium. You know, I'm expecting about a 10% drop uh, and then the price starts to go up and it forces the miners uh, to sell to capture that value. Um, and we'll see. But this is, I think, one of the most important things that anybody can watch. You know, I also watch the difficulty adjustments, how far ahead uh, are the miners um, relative to the 10 minute block rewards. And right now, it's about 120. It's about 120 blocks ahead, 125 blocks ahead, which tells you that the hash rate's going up. Miners are investing. More miners are coming on board, and you know, cash follows hash. Cash follows hash. So if the miners are investing, that means the network's becoming more secure. It's becoming more valuable. Price goes up. And we'll see if that holds. Um, I suspect that it will, but we'll see. But uh, I, I, again, I'm surprised that we don't have uh, more conversation about the overall supply that's available on the market. Um, I'm not sure anything could be more important in terms of relative to price to Bitcoin. Obviously, demand's important, but I mean, since it's a deflationary asset, it's all about supply economics. Uh, it really is. Um, so, next thing, right, supply economics, we understand that. And now let's talk demand side, right? Mnuchin came out today, again, saying, look, they need more stimulus. There's parts of the economy that are really suffering. And... What, you know, what do we got to do to get the ball across the end zone? Well, you know, Mnuchin's position is going to be Trump's position, which is going to be the Republican position. And in this politically charged environment, you know, they understand that 
there's a huge demand gap. We've talked about it, right? There's a huge demand gap. There's 15 million people that are uh, filing for continuous claims that are related to the COVID-19 layoffs, right, that happened in March. There's 29.6 million people that are on some form of unemployment assistance uh, or government uh, assistance in this country, in the United States. And there has to be fiscal stimulus if, if you're going to solve that demand gap. So Mnuchin's coming out. Look, Trump needs it. Like, I'm surprised that Trump hasn't gone over to Mitch McConnell and put him in a headlock and say, come on, man. Look, my, my, my reelection possibilities are riding on this fiscal stimulus getting done. And McConnell's not delivering. They couldn't even, they couldn't even pass a Republican vote last week to get the Senate bill through the chamber, through that chamber of Congress. They couldn't get it done. And it was a skinny down bill. It was a $650 billion bill. The Dems passed a $3.4 trillion bill in May that McConnell didn't want to entertain. And they're coming back at $650. $650, where $300 of the $650 it was basically unallocated resources from the previous stimulus bill that was already passed. So you're talking about a huge gap, $2.7 trillion gap. Um, I... It's, it's just unbelievable to me that this is still happening. And, you know, what it tells me is McConnell doesn't think Trump's going to win. That's what it tells me. He doesn't think Trump's going to win. And he's hesitant because they're playing to their party and that fiscal hawk, uh, fiscal hawk narrative that, uh, you know, they're concerned about deficits, etc., Mnuchin says, who gives a shit about the deficits? Now is not the time to look at the, the balance sheet of the Fed. It's not the time to look at the deficits on the fiscal side. It's not the time. And you know what? He's probably right. Um, because the demand just isn't going to be there. It's not going to be there. And there's going to be a lot of people that are suffering uh, and we're probably six months out from like real pain. We think it's bad now. It's only going to get worse. It's only going to get worse before it gets better. So I don't understand. Actually, I do understand, but I'm not sure this deal is getting done. Like I thought it was going to get done at the end of this month, right? The market's going to push for it. The stock market's going to drop. I still think that you could have some headwinds. You still have the um, the government funding that needs to happen by the end of this month. So maybe that's the catalyst that gets it across the finish line. But if the polls don't get better that show Trump has a fighting chance against Biden, then I don't see I don't see McConnell. I, I just I'm not sure he deviates. Um, I'm not sure he deviates. We'll see. We're going to talk about it. And, you know, if, if the bill does get done and let's call it 1.5 trill, then 
if that happens and it's 1.5 trillion, then hard assets, right? It's a hard asset. You just go buy hard assets, gold, real estate, Bitcoin, doesn't matter. All assets go up and you know, you continue to have the wealth divide, but we'll see. Um, I think McConnell understands that Trump's in a tough spot and he's not going to, uh, he's not going to cater to that. Um, if he thinks that the Republicans need to keep the Senate and the only chance of keeping the Senate is to play the fiscal hawk narrative. So that's where I'd see it going. Um, obviously, if the market, the stock market continues to hit headwinds, continues to go down, then that puts pressure under Trump, which puts pressure under McConnell. So we'll see. Um, you know, interesting thing came out Saturday. Like I said, one of my favorite and maybe my favorite uh, person that I follow on Twitter is Brian Romilly. And he tweeted out this thing about Venus and perhaps life that uh, actually lives in the clouds around Venus and the atmosphere of Venus. Um, and it has to do with this, this molecule. And look, I'm not a, uh, I'm not a science guy. Like I, you know, did well in school, you know, did well in science in school. Um, but, you know, chemistry and physics and all those things um, was not was not my you know was not my wheelhouse right but this is fascinating absolutely fascinating you know while we've been looking for extraterrestrial life you know whether it's through um, you know pings right that come from out of space um, whether it's, hey, we want to get to Mars, we want to understand if there's water, uh, we want to look for whatever, right? Various life forms, wherever, right? We're searching galaxies far, far away with these high-powered telescopes and whatever else we can get our hands on to understand if we're the only, if humans are the only really intelligent life or if, and if Earth is the only uh, planet with intelligent life on it, where, I mean, maybe all we had to do was go look at Venus and in the clouds, right? Because you've got this molecule or this gas called phosphine that typically doesn't show up unless there's some form of life. And this gas resides in the Venus clouds. Um the scientists don't understand why it's there. Don't have any idea. You know, maybe it's remnants from or, you know, pieces from life that existed a long time ago on Venus before it became just a place that, you know, you can't, life is just not sustainable because of the greenhouse gases. Who knows, right? I don't know. But... I think Elon Musk might divert his attention from Mars, perhaps. I think NASA might start looking into Venus in the clouds, perhaps. Um, we'll see. But it's just fascinating. Look, the world, the world is evolving. The world's changing. But it really comes down to the technology 
that is giving us a window into things that we otherwise wouldn't be able to see, right? Technology is changing so fast that what we're learning about our world, about the universe, about everything uh, is unfathomable, right? Five, 10 years ago. And it's all due to technology and how fast it's changing. And the world as we know it today is going to look significantly different five years from now than it does today. And it's because of technology. And who knows what happens, right? Relative to the clouds and Venus. But it just tells me that, look, we don't know anything, right? We don't. We're scratching the surface. And as technology continues to get more sophisticated, our understanding of that world, of our world, the universe and how we function in the universe and our uh, existence in the universe as humans uh, is going to is going to change. You know, our understanding is going to change and it's the impact of technology that's driving that change. Um, I would follow Brian Romilly. I think he's an amazing follow uh, just in terms of the interviews that are posted from 1950 to 1970 including these futurists that are describing the world today, but it was 30 years ago. And it's those insights, they're real insights in those interviews that can help us, okay, look into the future and say, well, this is perhaps what the world will look like or how it'll change, or maybe we don't have any idea what the world's going to look like. We don't, but keep an open mind. Because we know the world's going to be different. And if you're not agile, if you're not adaptable, if you can't live in a world where there's uncertainty, then you're just not going to be successful, right? And that's been the same, that's been the same since day one, right? It's the same since day one. Only the strong survive, right? Adaptability, Charles Darwin, right? So... I just think I just think this theme will continue. I know it'll continue. Has to continue. Has to continue. And that leads me to something that I'm working on, which is um, adapting, trying to solve puzzles, which leads me to Kazakhstan. Does anybody know how to do business in Kazakhstan? Uh, you know, I think everybody's just going to say, "Hey, Joe, just go get an attorney." right, to set up a subsidiary in Kazakhstan. But, I mean, it's something that I'm looking at, right, setting up a multinational corporation and having a subsidiary in Kazakhstan. So if you know how to do business in Kazakhstan, please reach out, jp.moran, M-O-R-A-N-1-1 at gmail.com. Uh, I am interested and need uh, need some real guidance here on perhaps organizational uh, setup and design in Kazakhstan. Have an organization here, have a company here, but looking at expanding and, and having a, a Kazakhstan operation. So any words of wisdom, guidance uh, from any listener would be welcome, would be welcome. And the final thing that I really want to talk about um, today is is really something that I know I've experienced. I know people that I'm close to have experienced it. 
Um, and it, it really is a, I mean, it, it, it's happened, right? It's not related specifically to COVID, um, but COVID has um, impacted a lot of people, right? And their mental health, good, bad, or indifferent. Physical health, good, bad, or indifferent. Um, you know, and, and from a physical standpoint, I'm thinking whether it, even if you, if you got the virus, if you didn't get the virus, if you're stuck at home, so you're not eating as well, or you're drinking more, et cetera, right? Whatever. We're all there. We've all been there. And the virus and how we've had to adapt to the virus um, to stay alive and to function in this world, um, we've had to change quickly, right? I don't think there's any question about that. We've had to really adapt and change our lives and how we function uh, in a short period of time. And it's put a lot of pressure on individuals, right? It's getting gotten people out of their comfort zones. Um, but aside from the physical aspect, it's really taken a toll on mental health in this country. Uh, and I can even talk about mine. So, you know, no longer with, you know, my previous company, MHC. And, you know, that happened during COVID. And so now, you know, I've got my own company. I've got another company that I'm working on. I got the podcast. Uh, I got my family here. But there's not a lot of social interaction outside of a, outside of a few people, right? Um, I'm starting to engage people, go out to lunches with people, um, you know, maintain social distance, wear a mask. I mean, all that's a given, right? But I mean, it's it's five, six months later where I'm starting to get back into the same activities that I was, you know, that I was in pre-COVID. Um, and, and honestly, there was about, let's call it June to, you know, I don't know, mid-July, where there, there was real isolation that I was feeling. Um, and I don't know if I would say that I was depressed, but, you know, certainly felt isolated, um, certainly felt down at times, and it wasn't healthy, not healthy at all. Um, led to some real negativity, et cetera. And I think this is something that we're all going through. And it's, you know, now I'm like, okay, well, I need to have some form of social interaction, even though I'm an introvert. So I'm an introvert and I need my, I need kind of my alone time, right, to recharge. But I also need that social interaction so I don't feel isolated. And as I'm having more conversations with friends and family, um, it's something that we're all experiencing, and how do we adjust and adapt back to some form of uh, of us and, and get some form of kind of a social aspect to our lives back while having social distancing and wearing a mask and being comfortable around people knowing that we can't control the things that those people are doing every day to make sure that you know we're still safe, and it's difficult. It's difficult, you know. I've 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 communicated and I've said many times on this show and on this program that life isn't going back to the way that it was. It's not, right? There's not some 
magic cure to this virus. There's not some vaccine that's going to be here before the election that eliminates the virus. That just isn't going to happen. So how do we function in a world? How do we function in a world where, you know, we don't get all the way back? Maybe we're 30% back. How do we create social avenues so we can eliminate the isolation? Um, You know, and I don't have a good answer for that. Um, I really don't, but I see it and I talk to these, I talk to my friends, I talk to my family and there's multiple people that were, that are going through this and they're having a difficult time knowing what the right balance is between, um, being social and getting that interaction, which humans, we need that interaction, right? Um, we need that helps us function, helps us live happier, healthier lives. Um, You know, we do not function well being isolated. And as well as, you know, take care of our health and make sure that not only are we healthy, and that means, you know, socially distanced, wearing masks and all those things, but making sure we keep our family healthy. So we have to be responsible. Um, And it's just a very difficult uh, it's just a very difficult situation that we're all in. Um, and I don't, I don't think there's any, I don't think there's any question about it. Um, you know, mental health is something that we're all uncomfortable talking about. Uh, and I just hope that everybody feels, Hey, we can have the conversation, right? You can talk to your friend. You can talk to somebody in your family um, if you're having a difficult time. And also know that we've all, we're have all we all going through something similar if we haven't been through it all already. I mean, again, I've been there. Two months ago, I was struggling, right? Fucking look at the news. The world's falling apart. It's like Dante's Inferno out there. And... We can't spend time with anybody outside of the people in our home. And it's going to be a challenging, you know, it's going to be a challenging 6, 12, 18 months until we get our arms wrapped around this thing. But, you know, my message is that, hey, people are going through it. Let's talk about it. Let's get it on the table. And let's figure out a solution and a way to move forward because, again, this isn't going to change. It's not going to be over. There's no magic pill. Um, but we need to have the conversation because mental health is critical. It's critical. And if you can be a sounding board for somebody, then you can make a real impact on somebody's lives. So just wanted to throw that out there. I think it's... Uh, I just think it's too important to not talk about, um, you know, everybody has their shit, right? It's something I always say. Everybody has their shit. So let's not judge anybody. Uh, Let's just be there for them if they need it. And know that, look, it's going to be difficult going forward, but we'll get through it.
and we'll be better on the other end. So that's it for today's show. Hope everybody is enjoying their Monday. I know I am. And until tomorrow, let's keep our ear to the grindstone.